Okay, everyone, welcome. <laughs> so uh, we're going to start another sutta. I hope you're excited about this one. Does it look, look good? Yeah. <laughs> this is, a, I think, a very interesting sutta for many reasons. And just to start off, we finished the, uh, the previous sutta we had a look at was the uh, Brahmajala Sutta, the Brahma's net or the prime net, the idea of all the various views in the world and how they are kind of... Uh, caught and how they kind of are understood by the Buddha and can be kind of put to one side because they don't lead anywhere. The Brahma's net is the idea of the net that catches all these views in the world and understand them, understands them in the context of the Buddha's teachings. And so that's kind of the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's like right view, yeah? understanding views, understanding the right outlook, understanding how the world is, how it is not, where happiness is to be found, where it is not to be found. That's the first factor, the Noble Eightfold Path. And of course, from that first factor, then comes all the other factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And so the uh, second sutta, therefore, which is this one here, called the Samanya Pala Sutta in the Pali, the fruits of the ascetic life, is about the practice that emerges out of that right view. What comes from that right view is this practice. So this sutta talks about all the other factors of the path, starting from the beginning, starting with the right view arising, going all the way to the end of the path, all the way to the Samma Samadhi, and then of course the tenfold path, the right knowledge, the right liberation, all of these things, the entire thing here. And this is, a, so for this reason, it's a very powerful and beautiful sutta. It is one of the things that I love to teach when I teach meditation retreats. Because it shows you where, what you're supposed to do from the beginning all the way to the very end. And somewhere on the middle there, you are. This is your, your mind is at this state, right? You are there somewhere you can be sure of. And so then you kind of have to find your place on that path. Actually, you don't really have to find your place. You can practice, practice all the initial things, but don't go too far straight away. Don't go straight to enlightenment because then you have a problem. So start with the more basic things. And then gradually you move in the right direction. So this is... For this reason, it is almost like the entire practice of Buddhism is kind of included in this particular sutta. But it's very practical, very oriented towards what we have to do and what we have to practice in this Buddhist life. And um, so it's going to be quite different from the Brahmajala Sutta. Maybe that's why there's so few people here that were so scared off by the Brahmajala Sutta. You never, never see them again at the Buddhist society. But this is, the, uh, so this is really the practical side of things. Uh, and so for that reason, uh, I think uh, in many ways much more interesting. Uh. So um, this uh, sutta, even though it doesn't look like it, it really follows the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, yeah, you can, you can see the Noble Eightfold Path working throughout. Uh, this is like a detailed exposition of the Noble Eightfold Path with all the different sides to it, uh, all the different how you detailed exposition of the various factors and uh, so this is one thing but here you can see the causal sequence of that noble eightfold path how one factor conditions the next one and you see how to practice these factors in in great detail this is one of the most important exposition of the dhamma that you find in the suttas and the reason why we can tell that it is important is because it is found in so many places. Just here in the Diganikaya, this is the Diganikaya second sort of the long discourses of the Buddha. Just in the long discourses of the Buddha, this particular exposition is found 11 times, I think it is. 
they're right there in the first chapter called the um, called the what is it called again now? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Forget about it. So that so it is very important. You go to the Majjhimanikaya, it is found another fifteen times, I think, in the Majjhimanikaya, also found in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses at least once. So it is one of the main ways that the Buddha presents the Dhamma in the suttas. And for that reason, worthy of, I think, very careful study because of that. So this is um, one thing, one reason why I chose this sutta. Another reason is that it is also very interesting from a more kind of narrative view. There is a story behind this sutta. And this is the story of the king at the time, King Ajatasattu, who was the king of Magadha. Magadha being this, one of the great kingdoms of the time of the Buddha. And he goes to the Buddha, and he, uh, he has a whole backstory to why he goes to the Buddha. So it has a very dramatic kind of feeling as well. Yeah? The kind of best, sometimes the best suttas are the one where you have a feeling for the personalities involved. Uh, you get a feeling for who is there, a bit of feeling for the Buddha, how they interact with each other. Uh, there's kind of a human interest in some of these things. Uh, some of the best suttas have that human interest compare, combined with the Dhamma, and it makes it very alive, it makes it very real. You almost feel you are there. It's like when you're watching a movie and you kind of emerge, immerse yourself in the movie, right? You become, you kind of identify with the characters. And this is a little bit like that, because uh, it's kind of a very strong and, and powerful story in this way. Uh. So this is uh, the whole setting and the whole narrative thing uh, is also quite uh, fascinating here. Uh. So we're going to talk a little bit about the story of uh, King Ajatasattu and what uh, happened to him and his background and the uh, and this uh, uh, how it, things turn out for him at the end. Uh, it's a bit of a, a little bit tragic story in a sense, uh, but um, sometimes life can be a little bit tragic. Yeah, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's tragic. Sometimes it's the, you're kind of muddling, uh, muddling through, as they say. Yeah. So, uh, various ways of living your life. Uh, don't muddle through. Don't make it tragic. Make it a good one. Yeah. That's kind of the point of Buddhism. Uh. And then the third thing which is uh, interesting about this sutta is that it is about the th fruits of the ascetic life. Uh, and uh, uh, samanya, pala, pala, pala in Pali is fruit. Uh, samanya is like um, ascetics, asceticism or recluseship or something like that. Uh, yeah? the, the ascetic life. Uh. And so this is very interesting. Yeah? What are the fruits? Why? bother to be a monastic? Why bother to practice Buddhism in the first place? So this gives us an idea of the purpose for this whole path. And of course that is extraordinarily interesting. What is also interesting here is that you will notice that this is about the fruits of the ascetic life. So the emphasis here is on the idea of monasticism, right? Why? Sometimes people wonder why on earth would anyone want to be a monastic? It would be nuts to be a monastic. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you foregoing all the kind of the pleasures of life and just kind of sitting in that miserable cutie of yours, kind of staring at the wall. That's the kind of Zen practice is staring at the wall. We don't do that, so we don't have to do don't get that suffering. But it sounds kind of miserable to be a monk, yeah, or a nun. No one to hang out with just twenty-three hours a day by yourself. Why do people do this? Why do people voluntarily torture themselves in this way? undertaking a large number of precepts and rules and regulations uh, that everyone in the world is trying to get away from. And here are people taking this on voluntarily. There must be some reason for this. Uh, this then is the question that the king asks the Buddha. Why do people do this? Uh, 
And I think it can be very difficult sometimes in lay life to really understand monasticism. And this is one reason why you can sometimes hear these ideas of how monasticism sometimes is kind of considered not really necessary in, by, by certain lay communities. It considers some kind of added thing that kind of belonged to a culture two and a half thousand years ago, it's kind of a cultural accretion that doesn't really matter. But if you understand the idea of monasticism, actually it is an essential part of the Buddhist teachings because monasticism is really an expression of that Dhamma. Yeah? It's an expression, ideally, of the content of the Dhamma, of the things that we're supposed to experience. And so from a layperson's point of view, it can be hard to really kind of get your mind around monasticism. Monasticism only works, really, if you get some other kind of happiness. Yeah? If you get an alternative kind of happiness, then you can give up the happiness of the world. But if you don't get that alternative kind of happiness, it becomes very difficult and you slide back into the world again as a consequence. You can see that in your mind. Yeah? Sometimes sliding one way, sometimes going the other way. And what that means, sometimes you may, it may look like monastics are kind of selfish, they always want to go back to their kuti, yeah. and as soon as they say another layperson coming, lining up to ask a question, they, you know, Ajahn Brahm these days, he doesn't want to answer questions so much anymore, so he kind of tries to sneak out and go back to his kuti as quickly as possible. And the reason for that is simply because as a monastic, you have to cultivate that alternative happiness, otherwise you have nothing as a monastic. Yeah? So when you see monastics being secluded, uh, withdrawing to the kutis, uh, actually there's a very good reason for that, because that is what sustains the monastic life. Uh, that is what makes it possible in the long run, that idea of meditation and seclusion. Uh, you need that alternative happiness. Uh, so it's important that lay people should not be, sorry, that monastics should not be as involved with worldly things as lay people. It is very significant. Uh, because if they do get too involved, yeah, you spend too much time at committee meetings or answering emails or doing things for the Buddhist society. I mean, there's a lot of good karma to be made. But if you involve yourself too much in that world, you are no longer able to, not, it's more difficult to access the happiness of the monastic life. And that undermines the idea of the monastic life. So remember that. Yeah? As lay people, you have a different kind of generally different access to different kind of pleasures. You're more involved in entertainment and eating three times a day and you have relationships and all these kind of things. That gives a different angle on how, to, on how to enjoy life. So once you understand that, you become more understanding of the importance of monastics not being so involved in the community. Actually, you should rejoice when that happens because that shows you that the monastic path actually is practiced in the right way. Am I making any sense to anyone here? Yeah? Okay. Great. Sometimes I talk and talk, no idea if I'm making any sense, but uh, <laughs> it's good to know uh, that people are on board. Uh. So, this is why the fruits of the ascetic life, to my mind, is so interesting here. So now we're going to start uh, the actual sutta. And uh, as always, you're very welcome to raise your hand and ask questions and uh, uh, add comments or whatever as we go along. Please feel free to do so here. Uh. So, let's just uh, jump into it. Um, go away. Okay. So, a discussion with the king's ministers. So, uh, 
uh, now we're going to see the king here is King Ajatasattu. He is the um, king again of Magadha, and he inherited uh, his kingdom uh, uh, from his father, who was known as Bimbisara. And uh, as a king, and the, the whole interesting backstory between these two kings is, uh, is, uh, is one of the reasons I want to read this sutta out. We'll, we'll have a look at that in more detail later on. Uh. So I have heard, uh, at one time the Buddha was staying near Rajagaha in the mango grove of
medicinal things. And then he leaves because he's finished his studies and he travels back towards Rajagaha, back to the prince again. Um, still can't remember the name of the prince. Anyway, and then he, um, uh, on the way, he kind of performs various kinds of operations, uh, all kind of things. Uh, very interesting to read how they performed operations in those days, uh, two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, they kind of just cut people open, uh, no anesthetics, right? Uh, they had to tie them down to the bed so they, they wouldn't move because they were so painful, obviously. Uh, there's a story of a brain surgery uh, that, uh, that Jivika performed in those days. They kind of cut open the brain uh, and removed some insects or whatever, and then put things back together again, put a bit of salve on. And that was the first, I think the first uh, brain surgery in recorded history, as far as I know, found in the, in the Vinaya Pitika. These are all the things that he did. And he did other things as well, like uh, cutting people open, straightening out the bowels and all kind of things, tying them. It was kind of really an extraordinary story. Anyway, so this is Jivaka, and then he becomes the uh, king's a physician and also the physician of the entire the king's kind of entourage and also then the Sangha headed by the Buddha. So very, he was obviously very famous because of these amazing uh, abilities. So then not only that but he also had great faith in the Buddha so he gave this mango grove to the Buddha to be one of his monasteries and now the Buddha is staying there. And he has a large sangha of 1,250 mendicants. In this case, monks, uh, it would have been. Uh, and uh, 1,250 is like one of the standard numbers you find in the suttas, uh, which basically means large number of mendicants. Yeah, there were, there were heaps of them. Uh, they were everywhere. Uh, I don't know, have you, has anyone, can you remember being to the Jivakam Ambavana? Can you, uh, can you remember being there, uh, Chetasi? Uh, no? When you were in, you've been to Rajagaha, right? Rajagiriha. Can anyone of you remember being there? <laughs> ah, you can remember. Okay, it's a kind of small place. I don't have no idea how they got 1,250 monastics in there. So maybe things may have changed a little bit, but there was a large number anyway. I think that's kind of the point here. So large sangha of 1,250 mendicants. Okay, just a little bit of background for you, because I, sometimes this makes the suttas come alive when you have some idea who these characters are, right? Uh, this is kind of my idea here when I say this. Uh, all right. Uh, now, at that time, it was the Uposita, the Komodi full moon, on the 15th day of the fourth month. Uh, and King Ajatasattu, Videhiputta of Magadha, was sitting upstairs uh, in the royal longhouse, surrounded by his ministers. Uh, so here we have the king, yeah, so this is in the same city, yeah? so he was the king of Magadha, and uh, it is the Uposita day, and of course the Uposita day is often very significant, and you can see now they seem to be having some kind of meeting or something on the Uposita, the full moon is out, uh, full moon is always very inspiring, yeah? I don't know, it's hard, maybe hard to see here in the city, but when you come out to the monastery, and this is reason good enough to come out to the monastery, just to come there for the full moon night, and just get that feeling of the full moon, yeah, the moon being very, full moon is very beautiful kind of light, soft, gentle light, yeah, kind of slightly on the off-white side, a little bit yellowish kind of light, Gentle, but not, also not very strong. You see, very you can see the shadows in the forest uh, with a kind of enough light to walk by easily when it's dark. Yeah. 
and it's kind of it's very inspiring. It's kind of a time when you do meditation. Things are often peaceful and quieter. And it was a time for inspiration in ancient India. And it is so also in the present day, if you get into that kind of uh, scene, yeah, when the moon is out. Uh, so uh, next time you come to stay at Bodhinara Monastery, uh, then uh, make sure you come on the full moon night. Uh, yeah? see, if, see if it inspires you. You might end up as a monk when you do that. Or a nun if you go to Bodhinara Dhammasara Monastery. Yeah. And the Komodi full moon, this is one of the names of one of the full moons uh, of ancient India. And he was sitting upstairs in the royal longhouse. These were stilt houses. Pasada is the Pali word. It means a stilt house. That's why he's sitting upstairs. Yeah. So all houses, maybe not all, but many, many houses were built on stilts in those days because of the monsoon and these kind of things. And he was surrounded by his ministers. So they obviously they were having a talk how to run the kingdom or whatever. But the interesting thing is here now, well, what is he going to say to his ministers? Uh, that's kind of fascinating here. Then Ajatasattu expressed this heartfelt sentiment. Uh, this is an Udana heartfelt sentiment. Uh, oh sirs, uh, this moonlit night is so very delightful, so beautiful, so glorious, so lovely, so striking. Uh, now what ascetic or Brahmin might I pay homage to today? Paying homage to whom my mind might find peace. So he doesn't have any peace. Yeah, the king is troubled by something. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a second. What he's troubled by. But one of the, to me, really remarkable things about this, where I think is very kind of... Um, says something about the importance of the spiritual life in those days, uh, and maybe something that we can learn from also in the present day, uh, is that if you are troubled, uh, if you have a problem, uh, where do you go? You go to some ascetic or Brahmin. Uh, yeah? You go to some monk or nun, uh, and you ask for some, is there a solution to my troubles? Uh, you're always looking at the spiritual side of things to find a solution to troubles. Uh, and that's very fascinating. And if you look kind of a traditionally in uh, many countries in Asia where Buddhism is a, a strong teaching, yeah, very often the monastics would have exactly that kind of position in society. Yeah. These days, of course, we have all kind of other people who look after people who are troubled, psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors sometimes. Yeah. But I think sometimes we uh, uh, would do well also to ask monastics for a solution to our problem because we have a different outlook. We look at the world in a slightly different way. And I think even though psychologists and psychiatrists can be very helpful, there's often an additional thing that can come also from the Buddhist teachings. And of course, one of those very important things that comes from the Buddhist teachings is the idea of rebirth. Yeah? Because when you have rebirth, you think about psychology in a different way. We're not blank sheets coming into this world. All our problems are not to be found because we were you know, bullied in our childhood or we had bad parents or whatever. That's kind of how modern psychology works. Everything has to be in your childhood or when you were brought up or in school or whatever. But from Buddhism, no, it's not like that. Often the reasons are much more deep, uh, deep set in your mind. They come from past life experiences. So it allows you a different way. And when you look at the world in that way, the solutions to the problem is often different because of that. So having a right view, looking at the world in a different way, actually forces you to find different kinds of solutions to some of the problems we have. 
Not always, but sometimes it does. And sometimes a combination of modern psychiatry together with some Buddhist teachings can often be the most powerful. And you will find that there are many psychiatrists and psychologists in the present day who are Buddhist psychiatrists and psychologists. They try to combine the Buddhist ideas of wisdom, the Buddhist ideas of right view, with modern ideas of psychiatry and psychology. So in those days it was like that. Yeah? Who, where should I go? Who should I ask? Yeah? Who are the really wise people in the world? Yeah? Who can help me with this? So what is the problem that he has? Now this is, uh, I just want to talk, I'm going to talk, come back to this later on, uh, but the problem he has uh, is that he has killed his father. Yeah? And according to the Buddhist teaching, killing your parents or killing someone who is fully enlightened uh, is just about the worst thing you can possibly do. Uh, do. If you do that, it is said that there, uh, you in, in, in the immediate next existence you're going to have a bad rebirth as a consequence. Uh, because the guilt is just so strong, the guilt is so powerful, that when you eventually die, you can't get it out of your mind anymore. It's stuck in your mind. You have traumatized yourself, essentially. Self-trauma, you call this. Traumatized yourself by killing one of your parents. And this is why he's feeling so bad. Yeah? He's feeling so terrible. How can I find peace when I have done such a terrible act? I'll come back to this later on, why he did this, yeah, because this is very interesting. Why do people do such terrible things? And if we can understand something about why, we can draw some lessons from that. I think these lessons are very, very important. Because not only do we then avoid doing the really bad things, but from those lessons we can also learn not to do the less bad things, any bad things we can actually abandon if we fully understand these lessons of why people do bad things. So I want to come back to this later on. If I don't, please tell me off or, or remind me or whatever. Yeah. So this is, uh, yes, yeah, so he's asking his ministers this question, who should I um, ask? And this is what they say. I'm not sure when I will. Yeah, let me. I'll carry on a little bit more with this one because I think it is a very, it's a something very interesting. I don't want to kind of miss out on this because these are the kind of little things of Dhamma which, to my mind, makes kind of the these teachings so interesting. Yeah. So why? What is going on here? Why did actually did he kill his father? And the reason he killed his father was because he was kind of hijacked by Devadatta. Yeah, you, everyone know who Devadatta was? Uh, yeah, anyone doesn't know Devadatta? Uh, do you know Devadatta? Uh, don't know Devadatta. Okay, so I, I, you have, sometimes you have to look at those people who were not kind of brought up in the Buddhist culture because they're the ones least likely to know Devadatta and these things. So Devadatta, he was the Buddha's uh, uh, cousin or the Buddha's close relative of the Buddha, but he had a, he was very kind of ambitious. He wanted to lead the Sangha, uh, and so he wanted to kill the Buddha. Uh, and so he has a very, he has kind of the really bad reputation, the person with the worst reputation in all of Buddhism, basically. That's Devadatta. So when you hear his name, it's bad news. Yeah, you know it's very, very bad when you hear his name. And so Devadatta, he wanted to make a pact with King Ajatasattu. Yeah, because he's a monk, he's powerful, and he had psychic abilities in those early days. He made a big impression on the king, and because he made a big impression on the king, the king started to follow him. Yeah, and then. Uh, he made a pact with uh, King Ajatasattu, and he said to him that, well, if I, uh, if um, 
you know, I want to become the new Buddha, and you want to become the new king, yeah? So we kill the Buddha together, and then we kill the king together, and then you'll be in business, you'll be the new king, and I will be the new Buddha. <laughs> that's not the way you become a Buddha, right? But anyway, that's what he thought. That's a kind of wrong idea about how you become a Buddha. And so that's what happens, yeah? This king, Adatasattu, he was obviously a very ambitious person, yeah? He wanted to become the king, and we can see that ambition also later on because he started a war against the kingdom just north of Magadha. This was the Vajian kingdom, the Vajian confederacy, and he went to war with them, and he won that war later on. He was very ambitious, yeah? His idea was to do things with his life. He wanted to move on, and his father was standing in the way here. Of course, if your father is standing away, what do you do? You kill him, if you are stupid. <laughs> yeah? And that is what happens in this case. He wanted, he wanted to get rid of his father basically because of ambition. And he was kind of, you know, he was, um, uh, the incentive came through Devadatta, who kind of pushed him in that direction. And so this is uh, kind of fascinating, because what this, what this shows us, to my mind, uh, is the danger of worldly ambition. Uh, if you are very ambitious in the ordinary world, uh, you're willing to do things that harm you spiritually in an extraordinarily profound way. Uh, yeah? Because this really comes from that. He would never have killed his father if it wasn't for that ambition. Uh, I want to be the king, I want to wa wage war, I want to expand my kingdom. Uh, and that worldly ambition can destroy you in a spiritual way. And for that reason, in his next life, he will have to be reborn for a very long time in a very bad destination as a consequence. And this is a very important lesson for all of us, because every one of us has some ambitions in this world, yeah? things you would call worldly ambitions. We want to have some degree of success in our careers, some degree of happy relationships, some degree of enjoyment in this world. Yeah? And so there's always that kind of feeling of a trade-off between the spiritual side and the worldly side. And if I pursue the worldly side very strongly, I may have to give up on some of the spiritual things. This is kind of often the trade-off that we make. And it's a very bad trade-off. And it's a very, very bad idea. We should always put the spiritual things first. We should never allow our worldly ambitions to rule the spiritual side of our lives. Because if we do that, then we're going to end up with long-term damage. Short-term benefit, perhaps, but long-term damage. So look at your worldly ambitions. Yeah? Be very, very careful, because they are very likely to lead you astray. Yeah? And they will lead you astray and lead to all of these problems down the track. Yeah? And so in Buddhism, we have a very different kind of ambition. Yeah? Actually, the worldly side doesn't really matter. Yeah? How many more years do we have anyway? Yeah? I just think about my own life, and it's kind of running out really fast. Yeah? I'm getting close to 60. It's kind of scary when I think about it. Yeah? And before you know it, that's it. You're finished. And even if you're not very old, still you have no idea when you're going to die. Yeah? And so there's no time to lose in doing the right thing. There's no point in investing too much in this world. We should always have this long-term outlook. What is good for me in the long term? What is the thing that I truly own? Your kamma, as the Buddha says. Build up those spiritual qualities. They are the only thing that really matters for the long term. It shows you the importance of right view. If you don't have an idea of future lives, you don't think like this. And so you then change your attitude. Instead of doing bad things in the pursuit of worldly aims, no, 
You do instead, you do the worldly things in the pursuit of the higher spiritual aims. You turn your worldly life into a spiritual path where everything becomes part of the spiritual existence. That is the right way of doing it. If you then don't have so much success in the worldly things, so be it, because it doesn't matter so much anyway. You're taking care of something far more profound, something far deeper that really, really matters for the long, long term. Don't make the mistake of King Adatasattu. Don't allow you to be led astray by worldly ambition. Instead, remember what matters is the spiritual life. Being kind, being caring, not doing bad things, doing good things as much as you possibly can. All right. I don't know, to me this is very kind of so fundamental. You know, every time your thought goes in the wrong way, bring it back, ask you what the spiritual path is. Why am I thinking like this? Why am I getting angry? It makes no sense to get angry. Angry never gets you anywhere. You bring yourself back, and you live really well. And when you die, you're going to say, yay, I lived a good life. If you just do worldly things, you come to your deathbed and think, what on earth was this all about? This is crazy. Oh no, I did bad things as well. Okay, don't do that. Any comments on this? Eddie, wow, okay. So <laughs> surprise, surprise, okay. <laughs> do we have a microphone so that we can hear what Eddie is saying, please? Thanks, Ajahn Bramley. Yeah. I came late. What you're saying applied to me just half, half an hour ago. Mm -hmm. You know, I was driving, okay, and then I saw something, this thing, and it reminds me, and then I was feeling like an anger, like arising, you know, mm -hmm. the, the thing, you know. Then being Buddhist, is saying, oh, God. so I, what I mean is, I look at it, I don't like it, oh, take me, mm -hmm. you know. Then what I mean is, I watch my feeling, my thought, this thing, Oh, it's for my thought, this thing, you know. By having this thought, this thing, I'm under control, it goes off. Hmm. If no, I was just thinking, you know, just now, if I don't have this knowledge, hmm. it'll be taking over me, you know, mm -hmm. and I'll be sort of reinforcing more and more and more. Could be three days, yeah. few, you, you, you understand? So it's the mind, the mind is the forerunner of mm -hmm. all states, everything's mm -hmm. mind made. That helped me a lot. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you very much for yeah. the, you know, I just... Yeah. <laughs> Great. No, that's good. You have, you have allowed yourself to be brainwashed by the Buddha, so you're, you're on the right track. Yeah, yeah. Got the good brainwashing here. So that's marvelous. <laughs> that's good, Eddie. So that's exactly, that's exactly the point. Yeah, you avoid those things. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, let's, um, let's carry on. So, um, okay, so then... Uh, when, he had, when the king had spoken thus, uh, one of the king's ministers said to him, Sire, Purana Kassapa leads an order uh, and a community and teaches a community. Uh, he is well-known and famous religious founder, regarded as holy by many people. He is of long standing, long gone forth. Uh, he is advanced in years and has reached the final stage of life. Let your majesty pay homage to him. Hopefully, in doing so, your mind will find peace. But when he had spoken, the king kept silent. The king was not impressed. So let's have a quick look at this passage here. So Purana Kassapa, he is one of the people known as the six kind of 
outside teachers at the time of the Buddha. There were kind of six uh, famous ascetic groupings. Remember, India, the way Indian society works, you have the Brahmins. The Brahmins are like the orthodoxy. Yeah? These are the kind of the, uh, the orthodox religion in India. But then in India, you also had all of these other religious people who were known as the Samanas. And the Samanas were like completely separate religions from the Brahmanical religion. Uh, and in ancient India, they had, in, it seems, uh, particularly six people uh, who were very famous, plus the Buddha. So seven people who had these uh, religions yeah, or teachings that they taught. Uh, and Purana Kasapa was one of these. Uh, yeah? So it says he leads an order and a community. He teaches a community. In other words, someone of significance. Uh, he is well-known and famous religious founder. Uh, and I think the uh, religious founder is Titikara. And uh, it's an interesting word, Titikara. Kara means to make yeah, or to produce something. And titi here means afford. Yeah, afford is a place in a river where you cross. Yeah, it's like where there may be large rocks or something in the river or maybe some, someone had made something artificial and you cross over. There's not, no bridge. You just cross over on natural, uh, natural uh, rocks or whatever lying in the river. Yeah. So you are a Ford maker. That's what it literally means. Uh, yeah, these people. Uh, they make a Ford. You're trying to cross the river of Sangsara. So this idea of a river. I was giving a talk on Friday about crossing the stream. Uh, yeah, this is like crossing the river. But this idea seems to have been an ancient metaphor used in India by all these ascetics. Uh, yeah, you cross the stream. The stream is a troubled world, always running on, moving on, always going somewhere else. But you want to cross and get over this and come to the safety on the other side. So this is kind of seems to be, so a titikaya is someone who creates a ford, creates access to the far side. And this is how they become, they become religious founders because they create that ford. Of course, do they really create a ford? Probably not, probably just an illusion, but that's what they were called anyway. And they were regarded by many as holy. Yeah, hold the, part, well, the word for holy here is sadhu. Yeah, you know the word sadhu? You know the word sadhu? Yeah, okay, you know the word sadhu. Okay, good. <laughs> the word sadhu has usually two meanings in, the, in Pali. One of them is the kind of, we say sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Yeah, it's good, it's good. And this is one of the word, meanings of this word you find in the suttas. But sadhu also means a holy person. And if you go to India in the present day, they will say, oh, there are all these sadhus around. Yeah? If I went to India, they'd call me a sadhu. <laughs> so, yeah, so these are kind of the people who practice the spiritual path. They're called sadhus. That is double kind of meaning. Yeah? So it means it is good and it is an a ascetic. Yeah? So there's obviously a connection there. Yeah? Good and ascetic are kind of equated in a way. Yeah? That's kind of the idea, I think, behind this. Yeah? Okay, and then of course he is of long standing, long gone forth, he's advanced in years and has reached the final stage of life. The idea that you have to prove yourself before you can be seriously considered as a teacher. Yeah. And then he says he should go to him, but the king again is not impressed and he keeps silent. Another of the king ministers said to him, Sire, Makkali Gosala leads an order and a community and teaches a community. He's a well-known and famous religious founder, regarded as holy by many people. He's of long-standing, long-gone forth. He's advanced in years and has reached the final stage of life. Let your majesty pay homage to him, 
Hopefully, in so doing, your mind will find peace. But when he had spoken, the king kept silent. So this is a second person of these six religious founders. His name is Makkali Gosala. Uh, Gosala means cowshed. Makkali the cowshed, something like that. Um, the, the word go is a very common word for names in India because go, cows, were like the currency of the early days in India. The Brahmins, the one who had the most cows or cattle, was the wealthiest person. Yeah, so go, you find go everywhere in India. So Makkali Gosala, he was someone who uh, had, uh, uh, he was actually an early disciple, it seems, of uh, the Jains. And the Purana Kasapa, the one we saw before, also had a connection with these people. So these are often connected together. And the Jains, of course, were one of the very early teachers. We'll see the leader of the Jains coming further down because they also existed at the same time. And so these groupings were split off from the Jains. Yeah, and so just like in the present day, religious orders split apart. That kind of seems to be the nature of religion, splitting up into subgroups and all these kind of things. It was exactly the same at the time of the Buddha. Nothing has really changed in the world. People have always been people. When you read the suttas, you get this feeling that People are essentially always there. We don't change very much. Yeah? The technology is a bit more primitive, but people are still people. Psychology is the same. The way we treat each other and think is basically the same throughout the ages. Now, Makkali Gosala was said by the Buddha to be a very dodgy character. He said that Makkali Gosala is like a fish trap. He catches people in the same way that a fish trap catches fish. And when the fish go into the fish trap, well, they go into the fish trap to their own destruction. Either they will die in the fish trap because the fisherman forgets about them, or the fisherman will come and pull them out of the water, and they will die anyway. In the same way, Makkali Gosala, his teaching was so crazy and so anti, so opposed to the way things really are, so opposed to the ideas of kamma and rebirth and goodness and kindness, so opposed to all of that, that it basically led to the destruction of these people. So the Buddha said that this was like the worst of the worst, was his teachings. And just as well that the king is not inspired to see him. Yeah? It's very interesting how even though these people had teachings that were really dodgy, people came to them, right? And they became the disciples. It's almost kind of not understandable. How can you give a teaching whereby you say killing living beings is okay, which is kind of part of what he did. How can people be attracted to that? And I think this is another kind of, I think, very important lesson for all of us, is that we are very often attracted to things for the wrong reasons. We are attracted to charisma. Yeah, someone is charismatic, they have a you know, good ability to speak, or they kind of seem very powerful or whatever. We're attracted to charisma, or we're attracted to people who have a large following already. Look, they have a large following. They must be important. I see this all the time in Buddhist circles. Yeah, oh, this monk or whatever, they already have a following of many thousands of people. They all say he's an Arant. He must be an Arant. No. <laughs> Yeah, this is kind of the danger of being attracted to things without really looking for yourself carefully. Does this make sense? And very often we are drawn into things for entirely the wrong reasons. And so people have to be careful. We have to judge. We, don't have, we should not be afraid of judging. If we do it with a reasonable mind and we do it in a reasonable way, then judgment is important. It's actually necessary for us to really survive this whole spiritual path. And so... 
so be, be open, be alert. Yeah, don't be don't be kind of taken for a ride by some kind of dodgy character because this happens throughout human history. It is happening right now as we sit here in this world. Yeah, we know that there are dodgy characters out there. Yeah? So we should not be afraid of making those judgments. We should not be afraid of our own ability to make those judgments. We shouldn't think that someone else is more wise. So we're going to follow them because who judges the wisdom of the other person? You do. So it comes back to your judgment anyway. Yeah. So it's kind of scary, isn't it, when you see this? We have probably been there. Maybe we were disciples of Makkali Gosala 2,500 years ago. Maybe that's why we're still here. Yeah. Yes, likely. Do we have any disciples of Makkali Gosala here? Could be, right? I mean, there is a reason why we kind of haven't made an end of this already. Yeah. Could be that we chose a stupid path. Maybe we didn't follow all the crazy teachings. We just kind of had faith in this teaching. Yeah. Okay. Not going to spend too much time on Makkali Gosala. So let's move on to the next dodgy character. <laughs> one dodgy one after the other. It's kind of it's this kind of Anyway, another of the king's ministers said to him, Sire, Ajita Kesakambala leads an order in a community and teaches a community. He is a well-known and famous religious founder regarded as holy by many people. He is of long standing, long gone forth. He is advanced in years and has reached the final stage of life. Let your majesty pay homage to him. Hopefully in doing so, your mind will find peace. But when he had spoken, the king kept silent. So here we have another fellow. His name is Ajita Kesakambala. And by the way, we're going to have a quick review of the teachings of all these teachers later on. And maybe that doesn't sound all that promising, but it's interesting because it gives you an idea of the commonality of wrong view between many, uh, behind uh, is associated with many of these teachers. Uh, so not entirely without uh, purpose to have a look at that. Uh. Anyway, Ajita Kesa Kambala. Uh, Kesa Kambala means Kesa is hair, hair of the head. Kambala is like a garment. Uh, yeah, it's like a cape or something like that, or a robe or something. Uh. And Ajita means unconquered. Uh. So this means the literally means the one who is unconquered and has a hair hair garment. Uh. Why did they have hair garments? Well, because they were very uncomfortable. That's why they had hair garments. They were kind of doing ascetic practices. That is what it comes down to. So he's the unconquered one who does ascetic practices by wearing hair garments. And we'll come back to his doctrine later on. But he was basically a materialist, which is kind of fascinating. Very similar to how many people today look at the world. Another of the king's ministers said to him, Sire, Pakuda Kachayana leads an order and a community and teaches a community. He is a well-known and famous religious founder, regarded as holy by many. He is of long standing, long gone forth, he is advanced in years and has reached the final stage of life. Let your majesty pay homage to him. Hopefully in doing so, your mind will find peace. But when he had spoken, the king kept silent. Again, the king is not impressed. So, uh, it's a little bit, when you see the way this is phrased, every one of them has reached the final stage of life, every one of them is long gone forth. It's a very stereotypical, right? There's not much, kind of, much to differentiate these people apart from the name. <laughs> and uh, so you get the feeling that this is a kind of a 
standardized kind of text. Anyway, let's just move on here. Another of the king's ministers said to him, Sire, Sanjaya Belatiputta leads an order in a community and teaches a community. He's a well-known and famous religious founder, regarded as holy by many. He is of long standing, long gone forth. He's advanced in years and is the final stage of life. Let your majesty pay homage to him. Hopefully in doing so, your mind will find peace. But when he had spoken, the king kept silent. So this is Sanjaya Belatiputta. And uh, he is famous for probably, uh, he probably was the teacher of uh, Venerable Sariputta and Mahamogalana, the Buddha's two chief disciples. Uh, so he was their teacher before they became Buddhist, before they found the Buddha. So it would be interesting to see what he has to say further down, yeah, what his teaching actually was. Uh. Are you falling asleep already? It's, it's, pretty, it's very repetitive so far, but you are, I'm, I'm amazed you're keeping awake. That's marvelous. I, Excellent. <laughs> Not always easy. Another of the king's ministers said to him, Sire Niganta Nataputta, this is the leader of the Jains. Yeah? So this is the Jain religion going back all the way to the time of the Buddha and probably slightly earlier as well. Leads an order and a community and teaches a community. He's well known and religious founder, regarded as holy by many people. Yeah? He's of long standing, long gone forth. He's advanced in years and has reached a final stage of life. Let your majesty pay homage to him. Hopefully, in doing so, your mind will find peace. But when he had spoken, the king kept silent. So those uh, six very repetitive passages, only the name changes in each one of them. These are the famous six outside teachers at that time. Uh, again, we'll come back to the teaching later on. Uh, any questions about this before we move on? Yes? Uh, yeah. Bur a burning question, okay. Uh, yeah. Obviously this is an august council, the king's council, literally. Okay. Mm. And, and yes, I do note that these are the six prominent sex, yeah? mm -hmm. external sex, we call it in the Chinese tradition. Mm. Uh, but why didn't this king's council recommend the Brahmins, which is now the most prominent mm. religion in mm. India, mm. apart from Jains, you know? That's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. he, he says in the beginning, which Brahmin and ascetic do you, should I go to? That's what he says in the beginning. And then they just, yeah, maybe the Brahmins were really, there are some, uh, interesting research that have been done that suggests that Brahmanism was not very strongly uh, strongly developed in this part of India. And some people, there's a famous scholar called um, Bronkhorst, I think, and his, one of his arguments was that uh, Brahmanism, the stronghold of Brahmanism was much further west in India, in the Kuru country. You know the Kuru country? Close to Delhi in the modern day. The famous capital of the Brahmins was called Kurukshetra. And this is what, you, if you read the, uh, some of the ancient Brahmanical scriptures, like the Upanishads, uh, they talk about the, the Kurukshetra and, and the ancient Vedas as well. That's where they talk about this place, where the Brahmins kind of... So it was further west. So it seems like, and that's a very good point you're making, it seems like in that part of India uh, was maybe less Brahmanical. Uh, it was more focused on other sects and other parts of the teaching. That, that might be one reason. Another reason is that 
this obviously is a bit artificial, yeah, the way the setup. Uh, every one of the sects is recommended by one minister each, as if each minister had their own kind of favorite uh, thing. And we need to remember this is a narrative. Yeah? This is spoken by someone after the fact. So the word of the Buddha comes later on, but the narrative was added at a later stage. We know that because that's what it says in the first council. Yeah? The narrative was added at that point. So I think we can take that it is a little bit artificial. And the idea here is to set the Buddha up against these other ascetics. I think the point is that the Brahmins were kind of too different. Yeah, it didn't matter so much. If you were kind of either you were interested in these ascetics or you were interested in the Brahmins, actually. But that's not, probably not true, actually. But I think the, kind of the main, the main sort of rivalry was probably between as various ascetics. That's probably why it is put up in this way here. There are other suttas where the rivalry is between the Buddha and Brahmins. But here the main rivalry is actually between with those ascetics. Yeah. If I understand the geography slightly yeah. better, the Kuru is kind of like, you know, in a kind of outback, this is not, not the main region, you know. Yeah, at that time, right? The, the main theater is, is, is Magadha, you know, the, the Kusala, Well, you know, well remember, remember we're reading Buddhist suttas, you know? That's why the main area is this area. Huh? And if you read the Brahmanical texts, you might be a different area. That was the main area. Huh? It depends who you are, what is the main area. Huh? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Everything, we're seeing everything through the lens of the Buddhist lens, right? So that's an important thing to remember. That we're not, it's not, nothing is neutral. Nothing is kind of... Uh, Everything is uh, biased in one way or another. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, eventually, you know, Buddhism is, is not too successful. Eventually, right? even with the king's patronage, and it's, it's the Jainism, the Hinduism, the Brahmanical tradition that survived. Buddha, Buddhism was very successful for a long time. Huh? Yeah. For a long time, and then you know that from the inscriptions in India. Huh? You can tell from the amount of inscriptions that were done, huh? and you can tell from that that uh, Buddhism was the most. Uh, successful religion until about the 3rd century AD. Yeah? Yeah? So not, not starting, say from Ashoka's time, because not straight away, from Ashoka's time until the 3rd century, it's about 500 years, Buddhism was kind of the, probably the most strongest religion in all of India, stronger than Brahmanism. And then Brahmanism gradually came back in again. Yeah? That's based on inscriptional evidence. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's carry on. So, um, what happens next? The discussion with Jivaka Kumarabacha. So Jivaka is also there. And uh, so now we're going to see what he says. And of course, he's going to have a very different point of view, as we can guess already. Now at that time, Jivaka Kumarabacha was sitting silently not far from the king. Then the king said to him, But my dear Jivaka, why are you silent? And you will notice this idea of sitting silently. Yeah? It's kind of fascinating. It's, it's one of those um, kind of maybe tropes almost uh, of, uh, you know, of literature that the silent person is the one who is wise. Yeah? It's kind of thing you see almost everywhere. And of course, it's true in Buddhism as well. If you are silent, uh, the Buddha doesn't say very much. Uh, he speaks when he has to, but he doesn't enjoy chatting or anything like that. Uh. So here this is kind of saying that Jivaka is probably a bit wiser than all the other ones. It's kind of a, inf can infer that from the word silent there. Yeah, he's kind of holding back and waiting. If the king is interested, okay, then maybe I will kind of give my opinion. Uh, not going to give my opinion easily. Yeah? People have to show interest first of all. And there is some, 
There's something about that which is very beautiful. Yeah? It's, like, it's almost the way we also kind of spread Buddhism in the world. We don't go out and kind of try to convert people. But if people are interested, they come to us and they say, I want to you know, hear the teaching. Well, then, of course, we're very happy to share it. But it's more like you know, people have to kind of understand that there's something interesting here. If you kind of try to convert people, it tends to cause conflict and problems. This is a much more gentle way of... Of giving people access to the Buddhist teachings. So why are you silent? Sire, the Blessed One, the Perfected One, the Fully Awakened Buddha is staying in my mango grove together with a large Sangha of 1250 mendicants. He has this good reputation. So he pointing to the Buddha. Yeah, so now we kind of get the comparison of the Buddha with these other six uh, teachers. And so now we're going to talk about the reputation of the Buddha. And this reputation that you're going to see now is a standard kind of uh, reputation that you see everywhere in the suttas. That blessed one is perfected, a fully awakened Buddha, accomplished in knowledge and conduct, holy, knower of the world, supreme guide of those who wish to train, teachers of gods and humans, awakened, blessed. So this is that very famous passage that you see in the suttas, yeah, and that we chant all the time in Buddhism. Itipiso Bhagava Arahang Samma Sambuddho Vidja Charana Sampanno Sugato etc. Yeah, this is that passage. And uh, this passage is uh, very important for many reasons, but it's very important because if we are to recollect the Buddha, if we are to remember who he was, uh, and if we're going to use the recollection of the Buddha as uh, a meditation object, the Buddha says, this is how we should do it. This is how we recall the Buddha. If you want to give rise to some joy and happiness or gladness in the mind, for example, in connection with your meditation practice, uh, this is what you should use, yeah, this kind of idea. Bring this to mind, and as you do that, uh, that is where the joy can arise. So what does this mean? How can this actually give rise to joy, this kind of formula? It doesn't seem, it seems kind of maybe a little, little bit unpromising at first sight. Yeah? It doesn't seem maybe all that kind of interesting, but actually it is very meaningful. And the meaning really comes alive when you start to look at these things deeply to understand what is going on. So we start off with the idea that the Buddha is perfected. Yeah? The word for perfected is arahang. Literally means a worthy, worthy one. Yeah? And in those days a worthy one would be someone who would be, who'd be perfected. I think it's a nice translation for arahant rather than worthy one which is kind of a bit bland. Um, and uh, so the Buddha is perfected, yeah, and he is perfected, of course, not in kind of any kind of mundane way, uh, but is perfected spiritually, yeah? and this is kind of the point here. Uh, perfected spiritually means that you have uh, achieved the endpoint of a certain spiritual path. Uh, you've reached the highest kind of insight into reality. Uh, you've achieved an awakening, yeah, an understanding of the world. Uh, you know what it is to be human. You know happiness and suffering. Uh, you made an end of the defilements of the mind. Uh, all of these things, you come to the end of the practice. You are perfected as a human being. And of course, if you really are perfected, that should have some effect in how you are as a person. 
If you are perfected, it means that your conduct will be in a certain way. That perfection should be reflected in how you are externally, how people see you in the world. Yeah, so you should be perfected in spiritual qualities. You shouldn't have any anger anymore. You shouldn't have any desires. You should be full of compassion, full of understanding, full of having renounced the world. Still, of course, getting the basics to survive, but not being greedy for things in the world. You should have a clarity of mind, no, no kind of confusion of the mind, no moha, and clarity pretty much at all times, understanding things as they actually are. So this the idea of perfection is a very kind of specific idea, yeah? and it's an idea that the Buddha used that pre-existed in India, but prior to the Buddha's time, it had anyone would be called an arahant, just like anyone today is often called an arahant, but it didn't have any real meaning, it didn't have any precise definition. In Buddhism, it has a precise definition. Spiritual perfection has a very precise definition in Buddhism. Overcoming the defilements and expressing that purity outwardly through your conduct, through who you are. So you are perfected. Part of that perfection is that you are a fully awakened Buddha. Samma, Sambuddha. Yeah? Awakened, the idea of uh, you know, seeing things as if you have been living in a dream all your life. And one day you wake up. The, the word Buddha actually means to wake up. That's actually the root meaning. Some European languages, I mentioned this before many times, but some European languages, the word Buddha still means to awake. Yeah, Buddha, you wake up in the morning, I Buddha. It doesn't mean you become the Buddha, it just means you, you <laughs> it's a very temporary Buddha. You just wake up in the morning. Yeah. And so this idea of awakening, which I think is very... Kind of meaningful, yeah. The fact that we are kind of in a little bit in the dream, we're a little bit not really living in reality. It's like we're walking in a fog in a sense, can't really see what's going on. And one day you come out of this dream, and a very part, very large part of that dream is the sensory realm, the realm that we live in, the realm where we're always pursuing worldly aims, worldly things, and we have this idea in our mind of where we're going, and the reality is very different. We're pursuing a dream that doesn't exist. There's no corresponding reality to that dream. And so when we see the world, we see it with flaw, with flaw in flawed ways. And when the first kind of, the most fundamental aspect of waking up is to wake up to the sensory world. And that's what happens when you attain the state of samadhi. Yeah? When you stay and attain a state of jhana for the first time samadhi, you wake up to the sensory realm. You understand its deficit, its uh, it's a downside fully for the first time. That's kind of what this is about. And of course, finally, you come to even more fully full awakening. And that root awakening that you come to after that is the idea of non-self. And these are the two kind of stages on the path of awakening. Yeah, the first understanding of the sensory world, and the second one, the understanding of non-self. This is why there are three, we have three asavas, one is called the kamasava, and then we have the bhavasava and the avijasava. And the kamasava is the defilement of the karmic sensory realm, and the bhavasava is the defilement of wanting to exist, yeah? it's the I am, it's the sense of identity. And the avijasava, well, it doesn't really add so much to that, it's more like the final purification of the mind or something, yeah. So the three asavas, this is what you awaken to. Yeah? You awaken, first of all, you come out of the dream of sensory existence, and then you emerge from the dream of identity of uh, I am afterwards. Uh. 
This is why the Buddha is so... Uh, yeah, this, this kind of things are very interesting, they're very profound. Uh, and... Um, okay, next, next one. Accomplished in knowledge and conduct. Uh, yeah, and this is... Oh, so you want to ask a question? Okay, please, ask a question. Yeah. Three asanas. Mm. Um, so, are they like once you realize one, the other one comes up, or are they gradually you go up seeing each one? Um, yeah, it's, it's gradual. Yeah, and uh, so the idea is is also kind of how you abandon them. Yeah, so you abandon these asanas gradually. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, of course, when you come to the final kind of destination, you abandon them altogether, but they are gradual. So the first thing to abandon is the, the sensory attachment, you know, sense, the sensory realm uh, and the cravings in that realm. And once you have abandoned that, that gives you access to abandoning the delusion of a self. Because that's one of the biggest things that ties you to the world, is the sensory realm. Uh, once you kind of understand the problem in that realm, it opens up the possibility of giving up the, uh, the sense of identity as well. Uh, What's the third one? Avijasava, ignorance. Uh, the defilement of ignorance, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, so you, so you, you. I mean, if you don't give up the sense of the, the sense of identity, then the attachment or the corruption of sensuality also returns all the time. It comes back again. So that's just like a temporary abandoning. Uh, but the abandoning of the sense of identity that's more permanent. Uh, but it happens in stages. So the first one is kind of the stage of stream entry, and then the final one is, is the arahant, yeah, coming one after the other. And that might be the distinction there between bhava, no, not really, because bhava-asava goes all the way to arahant. So, um, yeah, I think um, avijas, I'm not sure if it adds all that much to the three asavas. The most important one is the, the first two, uh, yeah. In Sri Lanka, the word asava yeah. means things that you like. Yeah. Yeah, because it has that meaning as well. It has the meaning of kind of intoxicants and that kind of thing. Yeah. So it is, is also a word used for alcohol and, and things. So it's all kind of things. Yeah. All right. So a fully awakened Buddha, yeah, accomplished in knowledge and conduct. And uh, knowledge here is not just any kind of knowledge. Yeah, it is obviously spiritual knowledge. So what is the knowledge that the Buddha has? And of course, the knowledge that the Buddha has, uh, that is the most important one, uh, and for our purposes, uh, you can see this from many different angles, uh, but one of them is the understanding of happiness and suffering in the world, uh, the full depth of understanding of happiness and suffering. Yeah? Because that's why the first noble truth starts off with the noble truth of suffering. Yeah? The Buddha has understood what suffering is, uh, and by implication, also what happiness is. Uh. So this is kind of what the Buddha is about, and understanding happiness and suffering. Yeah. But from that understanding of happiness and suffering yeah, also implies the causality. Why are we happy? Why do we suffer? Yeah. And also, part of this insight is also the idea of the path that leads away from suffering and towards happiness. Yeah. So this is really that knowledge in, in, in brief. Yeah. You can say it as a Four Noble Truths, or you can just say it as knowledge about uh, uh, happiness and suffering in the, in, in the world, accomplished in knowledge. Uh, another way of thinking about this, because this is the uh, uh, vidya chadana sampanno, vidya is here the knowledge or the insight. Uh, another way of thinking about vidya is in terms of the te vidya, the three deep insights uh, that we talk about always in Buddhism. Uh, and they are the understanding of rebirth, uh, 
kamma, and then finally the full enlightenment experience. Yeah, these are the three insights in Buddhism. That is again really just the same thing. It is an understanding about happiness and suffering. Yeah, because when you see rebirth, what you see is suffering. Yeah, when you see kamma, you're seeing the mechanism behind. That suffering, yeah, second noble truth. Uh, and when you see the enlightenment experience, well, that is also seeing the path that leads to these things, because when you know the end point, uh, you can also understand what the path is about. That's really the third and the fourth noble truth coming together. Yeah. So again, knowledge is about understanding happiness and suffering in the world. Uh, that kind of is marvelous when you think about it. Uh, because if, you look, if we look at our lives, uh, that is exactly what everything in our life is about. It's about happiness and suffering. You can maybe add meaning to that, but meaning is very closely tied to happiness and suffering. Yeah. This is what life is about. Anyone, anything you do in the world, anything anyone ever does in their life is somehow geared towards more happiness, deeper sense of contentment, more joy, less suffering, less fewer relationships breaks up, less death, fewer legs broken, right? All of these things are the things that we're looking for in the world. Not losing your car keys so often, whatever it is. I don't have car keys, fortunately. One of the great benefits of being a monk. And so all of this, yeah, anything that is good in the world, the Buddha understands. Everything that is bad in the world, he understands. And then he understands how to move from the badness to the goodness. This is what it is about. To the very highest point where all your experience, to the very point where you find the ultimate happiness, and once you understand what this means, uh, you understand that the Buddha is the one teacher uh, who can give you everything you ever wanted in your life. Uh, in fact, uh, it is so profound, you didn't even know you wanted some of these things uh, because you had no idea what was going on on this path, right? Uh, because the profundity of these meditations and the insights are way beyond anything uh, you had ever thought possible in your life. Uh, so this is kind of the extraordinary thing. Here is a person... Uh, who has the ability to give you, who offer you the highest happiness in the world. Yeah, the highest contentment, the highest sense of meaning. The, uh, the purpose of existence itself is actually at stake here with this path. And because the Buddha is a person who is able to give you the highest happiness, he's able to give you the highest gift. How do you feel when someone gives you a gift? Someone comes to you with a box of chocolates. <laughs> yeah, or some flowers, or maybe whatever it is that people bring, bring to each other. How do you feel? You can feel happy, right? Someone is thinking about me. Wow, how sweet that is. I have to admit, that as a monk, I'm blessed to be a monk because people bring me things all the time. It's kind of marvelous, yeah? And that in itself is a source of joy. But that's beautiful already, yeah? If someone thinks about you, you feel uplifted. You feel, wow, they gave something to me. They thought about me. They gave me a bit of happiness. But the happiness that you get from a box of chocolate, uh, the happiness that you get from a bunch of flowers, uh, is tiny. It's very it's minute. Yeah, you're happy for a short moment and you forget about it the next day or whatever, and you're going to carry on with it up. And then you demand another bunch of flowers. Yeah, and if your husband or wife doesn't kind of bring you something, then you get really upset. They forget about me. And then kind of life seems painful and meaningless uh, because of that. Uh. But the Buddha gives you the highest happiness in the world. Uh. The Buddha has something on offer that is almost, un, almost unimaginable for us. This is the gift that he gives to humanity. This is the gift that he gives to each one of us. The gratitude we should have for that should be unlimited 
times more than the gratitude we have for a box of chocolates, right? This is really the idea of understanding who the Buddha is, understanding what the Buddha is as a teacher. He is this person who has access to something that is everyone really wants, but we don't even fully understand that we want it before he starts talking about it. And when you start thinking like this, starting to understand the idea of who, it's not, it's not even who the Buddha is, yeah? because the Buddha has kind of transcended his own humanity. He doesn't have any identity anymore. When you see the Buddha, he looks like a man from India two and a half thousand years ago. He looks like a monk from India two and a half thousand years ago, but he doesn't have that identity. Yeah? The Buddha's identity is insight. It is compassion. It is understanding. Actually, that's not his identity either, but that is what he's made up of at that particular point. Yeah? And that is what you are respecting when you see the Buddha. Yeah? So by thinking like this, uh, yeah, and the idea here, what I'm trying to point out, is that so much of the Buddhist path, uh, a very large part of the practice, uh, is to be inspired in the right way. Uh, and by being inspired by the Buddha, by understanding who the Buddha was, uh, by bringing the Buddha closer to our life, by having a relationship with the Buddha, a spiritual relationship with the Buddha, because you understand what he, what he was, or what he still is for us today here, uh, you can bow down to the Buddha next time and you can feel emotions arising here. You feel, wow, I'm bowing down to the Buddha. I'm bowing down to the greatest wisdom in human history, the greatest spiritual genius in recorded history here. I'm bowing down to endless compassion, endless wisdom, endless understanding, endless kindness, no defilements. Someone who has the key to my own happiness, and he has given it to me. He gave it to me two and a half thousand years ago, because he thought about us at that time, two and a half thousand years ago. He thought about the future as well. When you start thinking like that, it opens something inside of you. It gives you access to certain feelings and emotions that are truly spiritual, because these are really spiritual feelings. And then you are actually doing the contemplation of the Buddha in the right way. And then when you bow down to the Buddha, Maybe you have tears of joy happening because you do that. People who are advanced on the path, there's a very common experience that you have tears of joy when you bow down to something so beautiful. That becomes the foundation because that is pure, because there's no defilements involved with that. It means that you have the foundation for meditation is made. Yeah? Then you have the gladness, you follow the breath together with that gladness uh, and it gives rise to all the peace and all the happiness that you ever wanted in your life because the foundation is in place. Uh, this foundation of uh, joy matters so enormously and this is what you find again and again and again in the suttas as part of the meditation practice. Uh, so if you get these things right, uh, yeah, it is not necessarily so easy. It can be difficult to build up a relationship with the Buddha, but some people do it. Uh, if you get it right, it can be very powerful there. Uh. So accomplished in knowledge and conduct. And as I was saying before, the idea that if you have a certain knowledge, because your mind is changed, because you have abandoned the defilements, you cannot express those defilements in action anymore because the defilements don't exist. So if you have no defilement of anger, you cannot express anger. So if someone is angry, you know they're not really enlightened or awakened. Yeah? If someone has lots of desires, again, you know the same thing. So your conduct shows, uh, should reflect your inner qualities. Uh, yeah, so your inner your qualities within should be reflected in your conduct. And this is very, very useful to know, because it means that uh, if you know that, uh, 
you know that we have the ability to some extent to judge people, yeah? Is this person awakened or not? Okay, they have a big reputation, but I will judge for myself because I know that it's always dangerous to just follow the crowd and these kind of things. Knowledge and conduct going together. This is kind of a beautiful idea. Anyone have any thoughts or are you all kind of uh, <laughs> thoughtless? Eddie has a thought, okay. Okay, Eddie. <laughs> Ajahn Brahmali, very interesting discussion, you know. There is no doubt, no doubt at all, that what the Buddha is saying is true. You know. Alright? Yeah. But then the, the stages towards enlightenment, you know, there are four stages, okay? It takes seven lifetimes, I think, you know. You know. So, for example, just so we're talking about this, uh, the box of chocolate, the little thrill we have, uh, okay? Or even like desire, if we have some desire, like sexual desire, I think, you know. So we have, don't you think, we have to be true to ourselves, you know. Mm. If we still need that desire, you know, we can't just abandon it, you know. Mm. We slowly, over time, we, we slowly, you know, mm. like uh, if we take many lifetimes, mm. so what, you know. So, you, know <laughs> <laughs> you see what I mean? Yes, we slowly, yeah, yeah. knowing it, we yeah. slowly abandon, yeah. you know. Yeah. Also, there's the, the Buddha says, the path towards enlightenment mm. is the middle way. Mm. So we have to be you know, not, yep. like uh, not just jump into it and find yourself in trouble. Or that thing. Mm. Slowly, you know, you have, you have to sort of measure yourself how, how you feel, you know. Mm. You know? Mm. you see what I mean? Sure, see what I mean, yeah. So this is my response. Uh, I say, uh, don't push yourself, but go as, fa but, but go as fast as you can anyway. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah? Don't go slower than you have to. Because because what happens you're never going to get there. So go as fast as you possibly can. That's what I would say. So you're you're right because sometimes we suppress things and all kind of things. And if you start suppressing things, and then you can create more problems than you are solving. So that's exactly true. Huh? Yeah, yeah, good. Huh? Um, okay. So let's. Um, sorry. Yes. Please. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ajahn Pramali, yeah. could you go into more about saying how? the people who have a good um, relationship with Buddha, mm. because my understanding mm. is that Buddha has, he's not here anymore. So are you talking about the teachings mm. or? That's what I mean, yeah, relationship. I mean basically seeing the Buddha for the kind of person he was, yeah, getting a realistic idea of what the Buddha was. That's what I mean by relationship with the Buddha, yeah. And um, uh, yeah, so I, you know, one of the things about the Buddha is that uh, he was one of the things to understand. And this is often not, I think, properly understood. He is a human being, yeah, yeah. And uh, because uh, he's a human being, we can relate to the Buddha as a human being, just as you would relate to someone like Ajahn Brahm or whatever, yeah, someone who kind of you might respect a lot. Uh, uh, they are still human beings, and so they they understand you. You can understand them to some degree, yeah, because we have the same experience of the world. Uh. And so, when you read the word of the Buddha, because you know that he is human, uh, because you know he has practiced exactly the same path that we have to practice, uh, he understands you. He can tell you what to do. He knows what you have to do. When he talks about his own practice in the suttas, uh, he's telling you, "I did this. You should do the same." He's not saying, I am some weird kind of, I am some, I'm different from you, but this is what I did, because then it becomes irrelevant to us if the Buddha is different. So the Buddha is human 
being perfected, not some other kind of being. This is the first thing. So just as you can approach Ajahn Brahm, you can approach the Buddha. You can ask him a question about what should I do? Oh yeah, and he will tell you what to do, or he will give you some advice or whatever. Yeah, so this is the first thing to understand. And so then you can build up an idea in your mind about the Buddha. And then you can start to look at his teachings in a different way. Because once you know that he is human, once you know that he understands the world pretty much like we do, suddenly his teachings take on a significance and importance that they would not otherwise. If the Buddha is some kind of super normal being who has been practicing for four eons and has all kind of super normal powers and is the kind of the, con the background consciousness of the universe or whatever, if, if all of that stuff, it detracts from this kind of contemplation. And so I don't like these ideas when we read Buddha biographies which always emphasize the supernormal, the supernatural, the weird stuff. Yeah? I mean, I know what people are doing. They're trying to lift up the Buddha. They're trying to make the Buddha more important by doing those things. But actually they are detracting from the Buddha. That is my opinion about it. They are detracting because they're making Buddha, the Buddha something out of reach. You don't know who the Buddha is anymore. You can't really have a relationship with the Buddha as another human being. He becomes like a god, so you kind of you fall to your fall to the ground and you kind of pray to a being like that. You don't kind of please help me. I'm a hopeless sinner. Do something for me. And then it sounds like any other religion, right? The point is, Buddhism is different. Buddhism is the only religion where a human being is at the center of the whole thing, not some kind of god figure who is outside of creation, outside of the universe. This is what makes Buddhism interesting, precisely that the Buddha was human. And so it's important to get that right. Yeah? And so I don't really like to read all of these late biographies of the Buddha where things become more and more outrageous and more and more weird, the kind of later in time it becomes. Come back to the way the Buddha said we should think about him. If you read this passage I've been reading now, there's nothing about supernormal powers. Yeah, it doesn't even the slightest thing, yeah, not even a small ghost mentioned here, yeah, there's nothing here. <laughs> so so it's very ordinary, yeah, it kind of sounds almost too kind of ordinary to be true. Okay, he's a knower of the world, like okay, a big deal, yeah, we, we all traveled a bit, yeah, so we know a bit about the world, where he is kind of a bit of knowledge, everyone has a bit of knowledge. It doesn't sound all that impressive, but actually this is what is impressive, yeah. This is actually what is interesting here, yeah, because it is an understanding about our experience. Yeah. So, we, you know, we talk about, I like the idea of putting the Buddha on the right kind of pedestal. Yeah. Put the Buddha on the pedestal, of course, because the Buddha is exceptional, but the right pedestal, yeah. not on the wrong one. The pedestal of human being perfected, not the pedestal of God or kind of, you know, weird, weird per person or whatever. Yeah. So, um, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> Thank you so mm. much for talking about the Vulture's Peak mm. and the mango grove. Because when I went on pilgrimage, we did go up there on a moonlit night mm. and meditated in the cave where the council first met. Mm. And Jetta Grove and the perfume cottage so certainly personalizing the Buddha by going to the places he's been to, yeah. it's very emotional, yeah, very, yeah, yeah. very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. That's good, yeah. yeah. So that's another a very important point, is that of course when you go to India and you go to these places, uh, and you can recognize them, yeah, because they're described in the suttas, and you say, wow, this must be that place, because it looks exactly like it says in the suttas. Uh, that's kind of cool, yeah. 
And you start to realize that these things are real historical things. Uh, and you can place the Buddha there, you can sit where the Buddha sat. Uh, it's kind of almost scary, isn't it, sitting where the Buddha sat? The Buddha sat here, okay. <laughs> you feel kind of, am I, am I worthy of this? Or, you, you know, you start to wonder. But uh, that's kind of, yeah, so absolutely. I think that's uh, one of the very interesting things about pilgrimage is to see those places and getting that connection even more. Uh, so, um, all right, so it's already 4.25, we're going for almost an hour and a half, so I'm, I think I'm going to stop shortly. Is there any, uh, I feel a bit bad by stopping in the middle of this, uh, this thing, it's such a beautiful passage, but it's nice to break it up, because otherwise uh, I actually probably become too tired anyway. Is there any further comments about this? Uh, what about the person who didn't know about Devadatta? Do you... Do you, are you ha do you have any questions? That, do you feel, are you all right with this? Uh, yeah? Okay, good. Okay. People are, ah, Lynn, okay, please, find away. Yeah. On Friday night you talked about the sutta where, you know, we're all going down the river and end up in with the um, sharks. Mm. And who is standing on the far shore is the Lord Buddha. Is that just an image or is that like a reality? It's an image. An image. It's the idea that the Buddha sees what's happening to human beings. Yeah? He sees how we're driven on by craving yeah? and we're moving towards suffering. He understands how craving drives us to suffering. Yeah? He's not literally standing on the shore of the river seeing people. Yeah? So, that's, yeah. so that's an image. It's a simile for the, for the simile, purpose of... Yeah. And basically it means understanding the human heart. That's basically what it means. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. 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 question? Okay, Venerable. Yeah. Is there ever a danger, you mentioned the danger of glorifying the Buddha. Yeah. Uh, Ajahn Brahmali. Yeah. You mentioned the danger of glorif excessive of glorifying and supernormalizing the Buddha. Mm. Do you ever see a danger in the opposite where people make him excessively normal until he's virtually just Joe Average and there's <laughs> nothing really to him? Right? Yeah, Buddha, Buddha Average or whatever. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that is a good point, actually. And I think we should, uh, you know, we should kind of find that middle way, as usual, <laughs> with Buddhism. And uh, I think this is, I think, one of the outcomes, for example, of secular Buddhism is that, uh, I mean, there's many aspects there that are, to my mind, really kind of dodgy. Yeah. But also it reduces the Buddha to very little, actually, yeah, if you think about it. There's no more insight into rebirth. There's no more kind of... Uh, everything kind of collapses in a way, and including, I think, the nature of what it means to be a Buddha as well. Yeah. So, yes, it's very important. And I think one of the ways to understand the accomplishment of the Buddha is actually through our own practice. I mean, the Buddha kind of gives us this path on the plate, says, here, practice, do this. Uh, Still, it is really hard, right? Still, it's difficult to get rid of these bloom and defilements, right? They're still kind of haunting us like, uh, like ghosts or whatever. And the Buddha is someone who did it on his own. He kind of went into the forest. Uh, he decided to just leave the homeless life. I'm going to find, solve the problem of death on my own. Yeah, kind of. Uh, and so he, and that is kind of the extraordinary thing. And then he took that path all the way to the end. And he, uh, you know, so uh, when you see it from that kind of point of view, it becomes actually quite extraordinary. Yeah. I wonder whether you could comment. I, I saw there was a two-hour documentary, I think, Richard Gere, but they sort of reversed engineered this. He, he's, he's normal, therefore he has all the desires, and he has, a, he basically, they made him a very description of a totally normal human with all the, of the, the, the Buddha, defilements. The Buddha. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that, I thought that was also yeah, starting that, from that point of view. That's terrible. Normal. That's terrible. Uh, that's that's really that's a complete. Uh, you know, it's just uh, nothing to do with uh, what you find in the suit. It's, uh, it's also like the uh, some of the arahants you find on the internet. Yeah, arahant so and so, like they have on the website. Yeah, same kind of thing. And then they go back to work and they go back to their wife or whatever, and they kind of arahant so and so. It's a complete distortion of what Buddhism is about, uh, and that's kind of very. It's unfortunate. That's why you know we have to keep on. Uh, teaching what seems to be the right Dhamma, I suppose. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Yeah, please, yeah, please bring it, please bring it up, yeah. Anyone else want to say anything here before we take the outsider? Is anyone else before, let's, let's, uh, before Eddie gets another chance, let's see if there's anything, everyone else is happy? Yeah, yeah everyone else is happy. Okay, good, Eddie, and we can make you happy as well. Yeah, so go for it. Ajahn Bramley, mm. can I ask you, if someone is a stream entrant, you know, yeah. means if, if, if there's no turning, stream entrant means you're going forwards, you know, okay? Um, in the practice, is there any gui- guidance? You know? I find there's, uh, sorry, there's guidance, like, say, right, you're stream entrant, you're going, following the path. Yeah. If you were to falter a bit, you know, something will happen or what to push you back, oh, you know. To go to the red path. If you are a stream enter. Yeah, you know, like the, the guide you do, you know. You have the, you, you, you see what I mean? The guide is your the guide is also ready inside of you. You have internalized the guide. Yeah, yeah? it's only yourself yeah. would know. Yeah. You know, if you know, yeah. if you would you understand? So if you if you were to sort of you're like a following the path, if you do something not right, these things then something will come so you correct you, you go back to the path again. Also. Yeah, you know straight away that you're not following yeah, the path. Yeah, 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 yeah you yeah, have yeah, direct yeah. knowledge of that. You lose your mindfulness briefly, uh-huh, do something uh-huh. wrong, and then you know, oh, I did something wrong. You pull yourself back again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right, let's have a quick look at the um, uh, questions from outside. So the first is from Indira Fernando. Hello, Indira. I, one of our trusted supporters from Sri Lanka. <laughs> So, Ajahn, is it true that Venerable Devadatta was a good meditator and that he had psychic powers developed through meditation? If it is so, what about his sila? Uh, question, Ajahn, is it true that Venerable Devadatta was a good meditator? Okay, same thing again, yeah. So, um, uh, is it true? I, the evidence is uh, not very strong. Devadatta is a very marginal character. He's not talked about much in the suttas for obvious reason. He wasn't inspiring. The suttas are supposed to be inspiring. If you want to know a bit about his life, you have to read the Vinaya Pitaka. That's where you find the story of Devadatta. And according to the story you find there, he had, he, he's described as having one psychic power. The description there is that he transformed himself into uh, a young boy with a snake as a belt, and he was sitting in the king's lap, King Sadhu's lap, and the king got frightened. And when the king got frightened, he, uh, the king said, "Oh, who are you? I'm Devadatta. Please turn yourself back into the real Devadatta again, or something like that." That's a story, basically. So that's really all there is in the kind of, you know, in the canonical texts. And then this is expanded on elsewhere in other texts, like the Jatakas, where Devadatta has been kind of haunting the Buddha to be for, for, you know, for incalculable lives previously. Uh, so that, so that's, the evidence isn't very strong. So I don't think we can say very much about Devadatta. Uh, the story then carries on also to say that he lost his powers. Yeah? So it actually says that. He lost his kind of meditation abilities and all of these kind of things. So uh, 
it's very difficult to know to what extent they had that. Uh, but the point is, and I think this is an important point, regardless, uh, even if you are a very good meditator, uh, even if you have kind of certain psychic powers and all these kind of things, uh, you can still be corrupted. Uh, yeah? You haven't gone beyond being corrupted, uh, and that is precisely the problem. Uh, so uh, you can fall away from that, and once you fall away, the defilements will return. Uh, and if you have a certain proclivity, a certain propensity, a certain you know, you're leaning in a certain direction uh, because it may be your, your personality or whatever, then uh, you will, maybe you will desire power, yeah? like in Devadatta's case. Uh, and so that desire for power comes back uh, and you forget about this whole idea of rebirth and the problems that you're causing for yourself. Uh. So sila was, may have been good initially and then through the defilements re-arising, uh, then the sila becomes poor and becomes destroyed further down the track. And this is probably what happened with Devadatta. Uh, yeah. If we are to believe the story, something like that uh, would probably have happened. Uh. Then we have a question from Meli Ka. Hello, Meli. Uh, dear Ajahn, what is the meaning of akaliko? Is the Dhamma not subject to time or not to change? Thank you. So the uh, word akaliko, uh, it is found in particular in the standard description of the Dhamma. Yeah? It is uh, uh, sanditiko and akaliko. And uh, in that description of the Dhamma, it seems to be synonymous with sanditiko. So if you know what sanditiko means, you know what akaliko means. Uh, but maybe you don't know what sanditiko means, I will tell you what it means, uh, just in case. So sanditiko means like visible here and now, yeah, visible in this life. That's what sanditika means. Uh, yeah, so it, it, it is the opposite of samparaika. Samparaika means like that has to do with rebirth in the future life. Uh, sanditika has to do with this life, visible in this existence. Uh, so akalika is really a synonym with, for that. It means that the Dhamma, you don't have to wait till your next, next existence. Uh, before you experience the Dhamma. The Dhamma can be experienced here and now, yeah, in this very life. And this is the main meaning of Akalika and Sanditika in the suttas. And this is what is different, uh, the difference between Buddhism and other religions. Other religions usually have to wait and find out after you die, is there a God or is there not? Okay, sorry there was no God, okay, then you have a problem maybe. Uh, but in Buddhism, you don't have to wait. All the results of the path can be experienced right here in this life. And this is the main idea of sanditika and akalika. The Dhamma is sanditika. It is experienceable here, here in this life. Then we have a question from Rick in Indiana. So, hello, Rick. Ajahn, I live with a life-altering pain and illness. Deeper meditation brings relief, joy, bliss, peace, stillness. However, I reach out to food and diet coke. All <laughs> right, okay. So, uh, and don't reach out to that food while you're meditating, right? That's the most important thing. So if you do it while you're meditating, you're going to destroy that meditation. So make sure you reach out for that diet coke outside of meditation. I think that's my advice to you. Don't worry too much about reaching out for diet coke. It's not a big sin in the Buddhist teachings. So I'm not sure exactly what you mean there. Maybe you mean that you have some craving for this. It's okay to have craving for these things. You're going to have to need food. You're going to have craving for food almost till you are fully enlightened. That's not the issue. The issue really is whether that craving stops you from your meditation practice. Obviously it doesn't because you are experiencing joy and happiness. 
So well done. Carry on with that meditation practice. Make it deeper if you possibly can. And you're going to be a very happy person, even if you have these illnesses that you have. Yeah? So this is a wonderful example of how meditation can be done, even if you have a body that is problematic and you have illnesses and things. So carry on, Rick. You're doing really well. So next one. Question, Ajahn. Our local Sri Lankan Buddhist temple has a picture of Angulimala Tero. And after worshipping the Lord Buddha, they also worship Angulimala Tero and say the Angulimala Sutta. Is this practice okay? Thank you. It depends which Angulimala you are worshipping. Yeah? You have to worship the right Angulimala. There's one Angulimala before awakening and then there's Angulimala after awakening here. Don't worship the Angulimala who killed people. That's the wrong Angulimala. Worship the Angulimala who was enlightened. Yeah? Then you are okay. Because then what you're worshipping is good qualities. Angulimala was a famous monk at the time of the Buddha. Have you heard about Angulimala? Yeah. Okay, no Angulimala. Okay, marvelous. Okay, excellent. Don't have to say about that one. So make sure you worship Angulimala after awakening and then you are in business. Okay, everyone. So let's... Uh, Call it, let us pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. <laughs>